Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for November 20th, 2017. On today's podcast, we're going to have a special episode taking a look at the aftermath of Justice League's opening weekend, its failure at the box office, a fan petition for Zack Snyder's cut of the movie, what Josh Whedon's writing credit means, and uh, Ben Affleck's future as Batman in the DCEU. At the water cooler, we'll be talking about uh, my trip to Las Vegas, seeing David Copperfield, uh, Chris seeing John Carpenter live, and Ben has been traveling. And in the spoiler room, we'll be discussing the changes of the Justice League reshoot and what end, the end credit scenes of that movie actually mean. Uh, this is Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Slash Film writer... Chris Evangelista. Hello. So, guys, uh, it, it was a busy weekend. Uh, we recorded Friday's episode in the morning. I took off to Las Vegas uh, for a weekend trip. Uh, being in Los Angeles, that's one of the uh, the cool things is you can actually just drive to Las Vegas, uh, which uh, sounds like a short trip, but if you hit traffic, it's like you know five six hours. It's not fun. Um, but uh, I went there with a couple friends, uh, a couple couple 
kind of trip and uh one of the things i did there is i saw david copperfield um who i've seen many times over the last few years i've been lucky to uh be uh he he i'm a huge fan of him he reads the site uh and i've been lucky to uh being being invited to see his show over the last few years and see, see it evolve because it's actually evolved quite a bit over the last few years and um if if you're ever in las vegas i would i would say check out his show um it's unlike any other magic show i think there is right now what he's doing and what he's added to the show is uh, I think he's one of the only magicians out there that is really he is a lover of movies and a lover of film and I think what he is bringing to magic is he's bringing that the cinematic nature of film and also uh, storytelling it's not just like you know you pick a card and I find the card it's you know there is a 30 minute segment of this show that in that I mean it's basically his adaptation of E.T. Involves an alien who is live on stage. You will believe like this, like two foot alien is live, and it's like a thirty minute of the show of like him trying to send the alien home to his his family. And I, I know that sounds weird, and it it is weird. It, it's just so great. Um, the it, it's just it's amazing what a narrative can do to even something like magic. Uh, you know, I saw people. In the audience, crying. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, like it was emotional. Um, you know, I, I might have had uh, some water in my eyes or something. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I don't know. It's a great show, and this guy, this guy is like one of the richest, you know, performers alive. Uh, I, I, I know he's the richest magician alive, and he is doing. He performs seven nights a week in Las Vegas. He performs two performances a night, three on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and holidays. He performs a month, sometimes a month and a half straight with no days off, takes a week off. This guy owns a private island. He doesn't need to, like, he has the FU money to do nothing for the rest of his life. And it is insane that he is still working his butt off, number one, and, uh, you know, still creatively challenging himself and, you know, adding stuff to the show it's just really cool um i highly recommend seeing david copperfield when you're in las vegas um chris what have you been up to uh so john carpenter the the filmmaker is doing a tour right now to promote a new album he has where it's an album of his his movie themes because john carpenter not only does he direct he also used to do all the the soundtracks for his film so it's like a live show where he plays the, the soundtrack, the music from these soundtracks, and there's like a projection screen that shows clips from the movies. Uh, I, I saw him do it a year ago too, but he came back this year to the, the Philadelphia region. And it's a lot of fun. It's it's a lot of fun if you like his movies, which I do a lot, and it's just a, it's an entertaining show. I don't really go to a lot of shows anymore, just because I'm becoming a cranky old man, I guess. But. <laughs> um, but uh, I made the exception for this just because I, you know, I really like John Carpenter. It just it's a lot of fun to see. I can't even imagine what that show is like. I mean, I, I've I've obviously seen a lot of the John Carpenter films, but I like so he's up on stage performing it live or performing like how, how does that work? Yeah, he's got like a full band. He plays the keyboard, and then he has like a guitarist and a drummer and like a backup guitarist. 
and they they basically just play the theme. I mean, you know, the band does most of the heavy lifting because he's not, you know, like an accomplished musician, but and he's you know, not he's young. Front- <laughs> no, no, he's not. He's he's up there in age, but it, it's fun to just watch him just be up there and just having fun with the band because. I mean, you know, as much as I love John Carpenter, every time I read an interview with him, he seems like a very cranky sort of guy, but he's clearly enjoying doing this. So it's fun to watch him just enjoy himself with the crowd like that. You know, it's also interesting that like he can actually go around and travel with the show and there is enough people that are fans of his movies to want to see him perform the music live on stage. Yeah, it was it was uh, packed at the the place I saw. It's called the Trocadero in Philadelphia, and it's it's a pretty big venue. But it was it was pretty much you couldn't even move. It was that crowded. Ben, what have you been up to? So this past weekend, I flew back to Florida to be with some family. Uh, I just both of your stories were way cooler than mine is. I'm just going to be complaining about an airline for just a second. I flew um, from America or on American Airlines. Uh, And from the West Coast to the East Coast, it's like a four and a half, five hour flight. And the airplane that I was on did not have screens on the back of the seats in front of me. And that's like an insanely long time for you to rely on your Wi-Fi connection and like whatever crappy app they make you download to, (laughs) you know, maybe be able to watch a, a live TV show or something like that. So I just wanted to be, I don't know, I don't know. I, I didn't really have much because I, like I said, I just spent the whole weekend with my family. I didn't really do anything super interesting, but um, what the hell, man? Come on, like a, a cross-country flight that doesn't have screens on the back of the plane? That's like borderline torture. Come on. Did, did Were there screens throughout the the cabin? Like no, showing something? no, none. Zero. Yeah, oh, the so whole it's... The whole thing, it was completely devoid of, of all screens. It was like a, a BYO screen. It was, it was not cool. <laughs> uh, that is insane. I mean, I, I have ridden, you know, recently on older aircrafts, which have like, you know, those screens every like five rows or something. And you're subjected to watch like the most vanilla bland tv show or movie yeah. Um, yeah that the whole rest of the cabin's watching but I've, I've never seen an airline without any screens whatsoever yeah and like i wrote a an editorial a little while ago about delta sort of complaining about them like uh you know censoring the movies and and you know doing like um parental guidance kind of stuff but like even that looks great in comparison to nothing at all so i guess i owe delta a small apology and i just wanted to be like an equal opportunity complainer when it comes when it came to uh flying across the country so yeah um let's get to the news uh this is going to be an all Justice League episode because we got so much coming off of Justice League, which came out this weekend at the box office. And it, uh, you know, it looks like it underperformed quite a bit. Chris, what do we know? According to box office totals, Justice League made only, and I say only in quotes because, again, I, w- I would be fine having this much money myself, but uh, it made only $94 million domestically, which is $2 million lower than the estimated $96 million that Warner Brothers reported on Sunday. So basically, Warner Brothers originally gave a total of $96 million. It turns out that was actually $2 million off. And this is a uh, it's pretty much the, the biggest underperformer of the DCEU yet uh, of an of a opening weekend, which is not obviously what anyone uh, expected from this film. 
Yeah, it was estimated that it was going to do 110 million, which would have put it above uh, Wonder Woman. But Wonder Woman did 103 million, so this did significantly below that. Uh, if, if you're looking at Batman vs Superman, uh, Dawn of Justice, does anybody actually say the subtitle of that movie when they talk about it? I don't think so. But um, <laughs> uh, that movie did 166 million, and Suicide Squad did 133 million. This is, yeah, this is low. So what what does this mean? For the future of the DCEU, it probably means they're they should quit while they're ahead. But I um <laughs> I really don't know what it means honestly at this point. Um, it would be best if they focused on smaller movies. I guess I want to say it, it seems like the bigger they get, the worse the movies are. Like Batman v Superman was a big movie, and that was not great. Wonder Woman, by contrast, feels much smaller, even though it's not. It's a blockbuster, but it feels smaller. And people really reacted to that. So I feel like they need to stop trying to be, I guess, Marvel at this point and try to do their own thing. Uh, you know, this movie has a price tag as high as $300 million. It should be mentioned that worldwide this movie is doing... Uh, pretty okay. Uh, you know, it took in $185.5 million internationally with Chinese theaters leading the charge with uh, $51.7 million. Um, in Brazil, Justice League uh, is currently the country's biggest industry opening weekend with $14.2 million. Uh, how that will all add up. Uh, I mean, if you know anything about box office, you know, if you make a film for $300 million, I'm not sure if that even includes marketing. Let's say it doesn't, you know, then you're at like $400, $500, 600000000 $600 with marketing or what or, uh, you need to make, you know, the, 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 the studio only makes like half of what the ticket cost. So with something like that, if you're not making a billion dollars, which is... I don't believe I'm saying that. If you're not making a billion dollars, <laughs> you're not breaking even. So, yeah. Uh, according to Variety, Variety has a report that says the movie needs to make about $600 million worldwide to break even, which I don't know if it's going to do that now, which is very surprising because I honestly, you know, even though I didn't like the movie, I thought it was it would be an easy hit, but apparently not. It, uh, I, I guess people were not excited for Justice League. Um Certainly not. I think the marketing is pretty bad. Like you see the billboard campaigns, that it just looks badly photoshopped. Uh, I think I would say that I would before this weekend. I would have said that we would see a much lower drop on uh, for next weekend and the weekend after. You know, Batman vs Superman had a huge drop, and you know, Wonder Woman like held on. Uh, but I don't know, Ben. Do you have any thoughts? Like, could uh, I mean? What does this box office mean? Yeah, I'm sort of like Chris. I expected this to be a big hit. You know, this is the first time you've got Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman in, um, and and like the you know the Flash and like the full team really together. And I just ex- expected people to turn out in droves for that, regardless of the quality of the movie. But it seems like the you know relatively bad buzz of the film is actually reaching audiences of ears and i'm i'm a little shocked that it's not performing uh, as good as you know many people anticipated that it would you know that that whole uh campaign by the warner brothers partially owned rotten tomatoes to promote their their uh web series might have backfired on that company <laughs> um i think that rotten tomatoes uh rotten score probably affected this quite a bit um 
we, uh, you know, there are a lot of fans of Justice League, and there are a lot of Zack Snyder fans that are unhappy uh, that we are not getting his cut of the movie. You know, Josh Whedon was brought in to do reshoots. We know 15, 20% of the film is those reshoots, and there's a reported something like 50 to maybe more than an hour of footage that is cut out of the film f- that Zack Snyder did. Uh, ben, you, you wrote this article for, up for the site. What, what What is going on with the fans in their demand for a Zack Snyder cut of Justice League? Yes. So a, uh, a petition is circulating. And at the time of this recording, it, there are over 60,000 people who have signed it. And it's basically demanding that Warner Brothers release a Zack Snyder director's cut and Junkie XL's original score for the movie because he was replaced by Danny Elfman. Um, and they these fans want Warner Brothers to release this on home video. So, yes, Zack Snyder did leave the movie uh, after his daughter's death, and Joss Whedon, of course, came on to finish. This is all stuff that everybody knows, but it seems like these fans, are, I'm not quite sure if a Zack Snyder cut, if if what they want actually exists, because, yes, there is a lot of footage that didn't make the final cut, but I, I don't know if people recognize that on the timeline of this movie's production, Joss Whedon was brought on before Snyder stepped away to rewrite some of the movie and and sort of fill in some of these story gaps that they had. So let's pretend that Snyder had stayed on the entire time, right? Like he would have brought Whedon on for these rewrites and then he would have just shot what Whedon wrote. So the idea that like there's this you know iconic pure Zack Snyder cut out there that would be drastically different than the final version seems ill-informed to me uh, and I don't know maybe I'm just missing something but do you guys think that there would be any sort of major difference in you know I, I don't know it, it seems like I guess to put it this way it seems like the directorial uh, flourishes that Whedon put in the movie were you know he was trying to keep. Uh, Snyder's visual aesthetic in in line like you know he was trying yeah. to basically uh, keep the movie looking consistent all the way through so I don't imagine that what he added directorially would have been that much different than what Snyder had done and obviously he rewrote the stuff so Snyder would have shot that anyway I don't know what do you think well um I I think it would be longer <laughs> yeah uh, that, that that's for sure it'd be longer than two hours uh you know reportedly there was two hours and 50 minute cut of this film before you know uh whedon got involved uh you know i i've written in the past i had an article on the site which i'll link in the show notes called why zach snyder or why can't zach snyder release his director cuts theatrically uh because a lot of his director cuts even though they're you know long slogs are usually drastically better than the theatrical cut that is released in theaters. And that includes, uh, you know, Sucker Punch. That includes Batman vs. Superman. That includes, um, uh, what other films? Uh, Dawn of the Dead. There's a bunch of them. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like I think the big – and there it's, it's not unprecedented. I know you and me, Ben, have talked back in the past on the podcast about Richard Donner doing his uh, – director's cut of Superman 2, which was a mm-hmm. film that he got removed uh, kind of in a similar way, you know, during the middle of, uh, of shooting. Um, and, you know, he created a cut. So I, I think it's, it's possible. But I think the big problem here is the visual effects. And this is a visual effects heavy movie probably were not done 
on a lot of that, you know, footage that Zack Snyder shot that got cut out of the movie. Right. And uh, how are you going to release a cut with all those, you know, unfinished visual effects? Yeah, and that's what I was thinking, too. It's like uh, Warner Brothers has already poured so much money into this movie, and especially after this opening weekend, it doesn't seem like something that they would want to keep funneling money into, you know, and on the off chance that enough of the diehards will go back and buy, you know, double dip on a DVD or something like that. So it just doesn't seem like the best uh, idea to me. The the, yeah. the uh, petition it, itself is pretty crazy, too. It's talking about how, like, the two-hour runtime is disrespectful to Zack Snyder, and, like, the, the language is, like, pretty pretty wild in there. So <laughs> if, you, uh, if you're looking for a good laugh, you can check that out. But um, it, it, I guess... It, and I do think, like, you know, you hear 600,000 people, and you're like, oh, my God, that's a lot of people, right? Warner Brothers... only, it was only 60,000, so oh, it wasn't even... Oh, yeah, 60, it wasn't even that many. Sorry, six sixty thousand people, and you're thinking that's a lot of money, uh, money that Warner Brothers is, you know, leaving on the table. But if you figure it out, if they sold, you know, a Blu-ray for twenty bucks, you know, they're only losing out on a million, one point two million dollars, which is, you know, nothing in the grand scheme of things. Especially since it would probably cost, you know, more than that to finish effects for his version. Uh, so I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, yeah, and sort of uh, along those same lines, there was some talk about, um, you know, we were talking last week about how Joss Whedon was supposedly, you know, the, the reshoots and stuff. Uh, one of the producers of the movie said that his involvement basically comprised about 15 to 20 percent of the movie. But uh, if you guys saw the film, you noticed that he Whedon actually received a screenplay by credit in the very beginning of the movie. And that's because the uh, Writers Guild of America stepped in to dis- to determine the final writing credits on the film. And IndieWire has uh, a good breakdown of exactly what this means. But the the short version is that they determined that Whedon's contribution to the script was equal to at least 33% of the final um, shooting screenplay, basically. Um, and that means that he contributed, quote, changes of a substantial and original nature that went to the root of the drama. So... Uh, basically it means that the Writers Guild considers Whedon's contributions to be at least a third of the movie. So that's way more than 15 to 20%. So, you know, I think we can, we can basically, you can tell when you watch well, this movie. You you also got to keep in mind that like the Writers Guild is looking at this things in plot points and character. Do you know what I mean? Like they're looking at it, like how much, not, not how much like screen time, but how much of the actual story and character has, has been changed. Um, right. And you can do that significantly with just, you know, 15, 20 percent. I'm not saying that Charles Roven's lying. I'm, I'm saying it could have been done that way. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, lastly in the news, uh, you know, we've been talking about Ben Affleck and his future as Batman. Uh, you know, it's been kind of in doubt for quite some time. I, I reported a long time ago that, you know, after Justice League was released, Ben would be bowing out at some point uh, as Batman, uh, stepping away for whatever reason. Um, right now, uh, you know, there's Ben Affleck is still Batman. Jeff Johns has confirmed that Batman will appear in the Flash's movie uh, Flashpoint. Uh, I'm not sure if either of you know anything about that uh, comic book storyline, but basically uh, it's kind of like Flash's back. It's like a back to the future kind of story where he kind of screws up the timeline and uh, Batman actually becomes uh, Bruce Wayne's father, Thomas Wayne. And um, 
it, it seems like, you know, Ben Affleck would be in this movie. I would think that, you know, we've been talking about this for quite some time when Flashpoint was announced at Comic-Con. I think I would think that Flashpoint would be the perfect way to uh, if Ben Affleck did not want to return as Batman would be the perfect way to, you know, facilitate that because you could, you know, in the end have Flash, you know, restore the timeline, but things are slightly different. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens, especially with Justice League not being not being considered the success that Warner Brothers wanted. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk about that in, uh, in a second when we get to the spoiler room. But before we get to the spoiler room... Uh, we last week we talked about uh, what Warner Brothers needed to do to make the DCEU successful moving forward, and we asked for your contributions. Um, I'm just going to read one of them on 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 the podcast because I thought it was interesting. Uh, Tim, Timothy from Los Angeles wrote in uh, one of the pitfalls of the DC movie universe is that they started too big villain wise. Man of Steel had Zod who was way too big of a threat to start off with. His goal was to terraform the Earth and destroy mankind. Uh, That's no different from Stephen Wolf. There's been nothing for DC to build up to. And worse yet, Darkseid is going to do the same exact thing uh, in an eventual sequel. We'll get to that, whatever. Uh, If Warner Brothers wants to improve these movies, they need to find something unique in terms of conflict. Flashpoint is a good start with the alternate timeline. A, uh, a role for these movies, no more aliens taking over the world or villains threatening the whole of humanity. I think this is a good rule. Ben, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, and it, it actually reminds me of uh, another email that we received from another listener, I think it was last week as well, who was pointing out that uh, a majority of the DC villains so far have been war generals. And that's something that I hadn't really uh, put together myself. But if you sort of look at it there, aside from Suicide Squad's uh, Enchantress, I think uh, pretty much every major antagonist of the DC films so far have been, you know, like uh, warmongering, you know, <laughs> people trying to just sort of, uh, yeah, essentially take over the entire world. And like, it, I know it, it's, it's almost as like, uh, you know, a guy that made the 300 movie was in charge of this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, I realize that people are going to be mad about the comparison to Marvel, but I'm sorry, I'm just going to do it anyway. If you look at how um, Marvel started with the first Iron Man in 2008, it was uh, it was Tony Stark against Obadiah Stane. It was that was basically the gist of the the final conflict in that movie. It was like two guys in iron suits battling it out uh, in the sky over a city. But it, it the entire world was not hanging in the balance uh, in the same way that it was um, in Man of Steel. And I think this email brings up a really good point. Timothy in L.A. saying that. They started so, you know, it reminds me of 24 as well, the TV show. It's like once you how far, you know, can you keep going to one up yourself before it it just starts to become like untenable at, at a certain point, you know? Yeah. And how do you one up yourself when you already start at the, you know, the destruction of Earth on chapter one? <laughs> yeah. Um, Chris, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, like I said earlier, I, I think smaller is the way to go. I mean, even Wonder Woman, which I really liked, the the, the least interesting part of that for me was Ares, the whole, you know, because he was just yet another all-powerful 
war villain who wanted to, you know, destroy the earth. Like it's just, I don't know. Destroying the earth shouldn't be dull, but it is somehow dull in these movies. I, I feel like there's a better way to go about these characters and having them constantly have to just save the world from a, a vague destruction. Yeah, and this also isn't just a problem that's limited to DC. Like, I didn't really like Age of Ultron that much because uh, a, a lot of the same mentality uh, that we're talking about here was was applied to that movie, too, where it's like Ultron wants to take over the, and, you know, like Sokovia, and it's got, like, this huge floating thing. You know, it just becomes too big to the point where you can't even really wrap your mind around it. But the smaller-scaled uh, stories, like Chris is talking about, are a lot easier to relate to and to... Um, you know, to recognize what the the consequences of the threat in a in a tangible way, instead of just like, oh well, I guess the world's ending. It's like, oh wow, these people that I know and care about are going to die, or whatever the the case may be. That's one thing I loved about Ant Man was like that end fight sequence. Even though the villain of that movie isn't great, the end fight sequence in like a little girl's bedroom was you know it it wasn't world at stake. It was just so small and so personal and so great. Um, but let's move on. We're going to move on to the spoiler room. So if you have not seen Justice League or you don't care if we spoil Justice League, uh, you know, er, I mean, if you do care that we were going to spoil Justice League, I would, I would turn tune out now because we're going to be talking about, uh, what was changed with the Justice League reshoots and also what the post credit scenes mean. So this is your final warning. If you have not seen Justice League and do not want to be spoiled by Justice League, tune out now. Okay, uh, let's start out now. Uh, Chris, you wrote this article for SlashFilm.com uh, detailing some of the Justice League reshoots and how they drastically altered the final film. Uh, tell us about it. Right, so if you've seen Justice League and if you've seen the trailers for Justice League, you'll know that a lot of stuff in the trailers is just not in the movie. And while this isn't an uncommon occurrence, it happens a lot with movies, it's, it's kind of drastic with Justice League. There's a ton of stuff that just does not show up in the final film. And if that, that could just be a re, uh, a result of either reshoots or just things being deleted for time. And in, in an interview recently, the cast of the film talked about things that just got cut. Uh, Jason Momoa talks about how uh, you know, Willem Dafoe was cast in the film. Uh, I'm sure some people remember, but he doesn't appear in the final film. And uh, he talks about um, how, you know, there were just scenes shot involving his character in Atlantis and all that got cut. And, you know, in the film as it is now, there's like one quick scene in Atlantis where Aquaman talks with uh, Amber Heard's character. And then Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg, talks about basically how there was a lot more stuff involving his character. And he had scenes with his mother, who's a character doesn't even appear in the final film. And there were also... Uh, back when the film was in production, Joe Morton, who plays Cyborg's father, talked about how a lot of the reshoots of the film actually were centered around Cyborg and lightening up his character. His character was apparently much darker in an earlier version of the film, and they made him a little uh, lighter for the final version. It's weird, though, because I feel like a lot of people going in and coming out of Justice League saying they like the Josh Whedon stuff do not understand that a lot of the Josh Whedon stuff was cyborg related and that stuff is, I think some of the worst, <laughs> I mean, cyborg, I think, uh, if you discount the villain outside of the villain, I think the cyborg stuff is the least interesting thing in that movie. Um, 
you know, it, we, we've talked in the past, uh, or I've talked about it in the past on the podcast about some of the changes, like that whole uh, flashback sequence with Wonder Woman t- telling uh, Bruce Wayne about, you know, the mother boxes. That is a new creation. They they originally had Dark Side in this movie. The end of this movie ended on a dark note, kind of like an Empire Strikes Back cliffhanger of a sort, kind of leading into a Justice League 2 where they were going to fight Dark Side. Basically, Steppenwolf was just here to kind of like gather the boxes for Dark Side. And uh, Dark Side was kind of completely removed from this equation uh, altogether. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I think when watching this film, uh, you can see some of the the reshoots. I, I think they're very obvious. I mean, you see uh, Ben Affleck is changing weights. <laughs> you know, it, it, you mm-hmm. can tell uh, there's two different uh, Batmans in this movie. Uh, we, I think they've said that uh, Joss Whedon added that romantic subplot with Wonder Woman. Uh, you know, obviously uh, Aquaman sitting on the lasso of truth feels right out of Avengers. Yeah, I mean, it feels like Josh Whedon. Uh, ben, mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts on on, on the reshoots? Um, I mean, the thing is, I, I feel like those moments uh, improved the movie over what it would have been. Like the, I am not one of those people who wants to see what Zack Snyder's like un uh, untampered with vision would have been for this movie because we saw that in Batman versus Superman, and I just don't think that he has the the best grasp of what these characters really are. So it seems to me like uh you know this this is a really tough situation obviously from from a bunch of different angles, but it feels like they brought somebody in who is familiar with the characters and knows um you know how to knows how to make them interact well together and that's the stuff that you see that is clearly the Whedon influence in the movie. Um but yeah, the the idea of like there being, you know, so much more of Cyborg and all that stuff, like I can't really say, in, you know, truthfully that I'm interested in seeing what that would have been. Well, you know, I'm sure uh, maybe it would have given us a better sense of Ray Fisher as an actor or like, you know, made me more excited to see that character pop up again in the future or something. But I, I'm just uh, the odds are not in <laughs> in uh, Snyder's favor there for me. For me, it's more of a morbid curiosity. I would like to see just what this original cut was like, even though we're not going to see it. Um, it uh, I think, uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts on on the reshoots? Uh, like you, I am morbidly curious to see what they are. I mean, I don't think I, w- I would want to watch like a new cut of the film, but I'd be interested if like they put all the deleted scenes and stuff like that on the Blu-ray. Like if they show up on the Blu-ray, I'll watch them there. But I don't I don't know how like uh, anxious I am to see like a recut of this movie. I just feel like this movie was pretty much doomed from the start. Honestly, I don't think there's like a there's not like a magical better cut out there that's going to make this a better film. Oh, for sure. But watching this movie, I kind of wondered, like, you know, you know, who is responsible for these scenes that they're cutting away to this family? Is it a Russian family? Mm-hmm. Or I think so. You know, why is that in the movie? Is it in the movie just for the sole purpose of showing Superman and the Flash save them later on? Was that a reshoot? It seems like it could be a reshoot because it's like, you know, a very contained, easy thing to put in there uh, is, uh, by the way, that it, it's so interesting how I think the criticism 
I, I know I'm going off topic here, but I, I think it's so interesting to see how the criticisms of Man of Steel affected Batman versus Superman and this movie of like, you know, Superman battling Zod in uh, a major uh, city where, uh, you know, people were dying, you know, became a plot point in Batman versus Superman and uh, from Man of Steel. And, you know, you know, they had those like, I'm not sure if they were ADR or they were in the script, but basically, you know, when Doomsday was in the city, you know, they had like the news say, "Oh, the the good thing the city was evacuated." Mm-hmm. And it was like all to address the, those criticisms. And in, in this movie, you have the same thing. You know, uh, Steppenwolf picks this kind of Russian city that is kind of mostly been evacuated, except for you know the small family in this one house who, uh, even though they're afraid, the uh, the uh, what are those things called? Those flying uh, the parademons. Parademons somehow can't get through their blocking of the doors. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, I'm just curious. It, it's just interesting, you know, what criticisms they actually took from uh, from Man of Steel and what ones they didn't. You know, it, it always seems funny to me that Hollywood takes the wrong lessons from from you know the criticisms. Uh, do, do you guys have any other thoughts on uh, the reworking of this film? Um, I feel like they probably added that family just to because the rest of the movie feels so um, like there's there's aside from Lois Lane and and uh, Martha Kent, there's really no insight into what the world is doing in, in the whole rest of this movie. So I think that that it does feel like a reshoot that family and it just feels like something to give this uh, battle some stakes and and also to provide these character touchstones of like, okay, Superman, who's now back from the dead, is uh, you know he's leading the charge and saying he's delegating and saying go save these people, go you know yeah. go do these things that superheroes should do basically, um, and that that's what feels that's that's where the Whedon of it all comes in for me. That that seems like something that he. Uh, would have done even if the previous movies didn't receive uh, criticism for not doing that. You know, yeah. um, another thing I you you mentioned Superman and you know Henry Cavill uh, Cavill was um, you know busy shooting another film and he had a mustache right and uh, they were unable to get him to shave to do the reshoots. Uh, it didn't bother me that much, but they you know CG'd his face for the, some of the Superman parts. It did. Were you guys bothered by the uncanny valley of uh, Superman's face in this movie? I I really wasn't. I know a lot of people are harping on this, but I really didn't notice it that much personally. I don't know. Maybe I was zoning out of the film at that point, but I really didn't notice it. Uh, I noticed it a couple times and I was like, tr- I was actively looking for it and eventually I just stopped paying attention, but my wife was really bothered by it. She was like, what is going on with Henry Cavill's face? This is so weird. And I had to tell her the whole story afterwards and she was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, um, it's so weird, you know, it, and people have, uh, yeah, I feel like people have, have generally sort of blown it up into a bigger thing than it feels in the movie just because it's such a ridiculous behind the scenes story. But it, it is a little distracting in some in certain moments in the film to me. See, I noticed it a little bit in that shot in the beginning, the the, the phone footage. But other mm. than that, I didn't really notice it. But I also, you know, was not bothered by Tarkin and Rogue One. So maybe I'm not uh, 
as susceptible to that kind of thing uh, in movies. Yeah. Uh, but lastly, because we, we are going long, um, uh, we should talk about the Justice League post credit scenes. Ben, you wrote up an article on the site kind of explaining them. Uh, yes. So what's going on here? So the the mid credits credit scene is really just um, that one feels super Whedon-y to me. It's it's just fun. It's basically the Flash and Superman um, deciding that they're going to race and you know coming up with terms of their uh, of their race and what they're going to do. And there's like a brunch callback and um, you know th- there's just like a, a lot of fun in there. They take off toward the camera in a pose that sort of echoes uh, a couple famous comic book movie covers. And these characters are racing in the comics pretty constantly throughout. Uh, comic book history um but the big one is the the full post credit scene which is the first time that dc uh has done this in the dc eu if you want to call it that that fake name that kind of stuck around um but it involves uh lex luther or what we think to be lex luther in arkham asylum this high security prison you see this character from the back and you realize when the a guard walks in that Lex has escaped. It's, there's a different bald guy in Lex's cell. And then it cuts to um, a mercenary called Deathstroke who rides up to this yacht where the real Lex is hanging out. And so you do get to see a tiny bit of Jesse Eisenberg in this movie. Uh, Joe Manganiello, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He uh, was cast in the part of Deathstroke like over a year ago, I think. But we weren't really sure which movie he would appear in. And now we know that the answer is the very end of Justice League. And it basically he has a conversation with Lex and uh, the movie ends with Lex saying something like, uh, if they have a league, shouldn't we have a league of our own? So it sort of teases um, whether you want to call it the Injustice League or the Secret Society of Supervillains. Lex Luthor is constantly putting together teams of supervillains in the comics for various reasons. So I wrote this article, you know, sort of explaining the post credit scenes and sort of um, which particular uh, supervillain teams Lex might be teasing there uh, and what that could mean for the future of, of DC movies. But um, basically, the short version is that they're putting their own team together Um I have to imagine that Jared Leto's Joker is going to be a part of that in some capacity. Uh, but yeah, that's all we know as of right now. So I, I guess to sort of uh, to wrap it up, I want to ask you guys, do you think that we are going to see a Justice League 2 <laughs> with Lex and Deathstroke and whoever, you know, insert other supervillain characters here anytime in the next few years? Or is it going to be... Are, are are Warner Brothers in DC going to concentrate more on the you know the sort of Joker origin story and like Wonder Woman two and and you know some of their more sort of smaller scale things or are they going to throw another three hundred million dollars at bringing this team back together and you know sometime in the next let's say five years do you think we'll see Justice League two in the next five years I don't think we're going to see Justice League two anytime soon. I honestly thought that this post credit scene was teasing a Injustice League movie where it would be those villains teaming together and it's kind of like a Suicide Squad thing, which kind of seems weird because they just did Suicide Squad and they're, you know, possibly doing a sequel to Suicide Squad. So why do you need another villains teaming together movie? But um, uh, it should also be mentioned that a bunch of people in my theater, uh, when the shot of... uh, Deathstroke was when 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 you could first when you first saw him in silhouette on the boat. They thought it was Deadpool. 
uh, because he kind of has have has the same kind of silhouette, actually. Yeah, similar um, costumes. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting that people think that that's a possibility that a Marvel character could be in a DC film. <laughs> uh, if there was like a bunch of oh, you know, oh shit, you know, stuff like that in my screening. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm I'm just wondering how many people are confused by that. But at the same time, like you know, people saw the Avengers and. They didn't know who Thanos was at the end of that movie, so I, you know, I guess it doesn't really matter in the end. Yeah, I thought it was Galactus the first time I saw it, so I had to, I had to go read Slash Film to find out that it wasn't. So, so I guess the question here is, Chris, do you think they're actually ever going to do anything with this tease towards the Injustice League or a team of villains, or do you think this is going to be, you know, a footnote in cinema history, much in the way, you know? the dark universe will be. <laughs> yeah. I, I really don't think we're going to get justice league two anytime soon. Um, my only guess is if they want to, they can sort of graft this super villain team onto the solo Batman movie, because I'm pretty sure Deathstroke is supposed to be in that. So it, it wouldn't be hard to get, you know, Lex Luthor in that as well. I mean, no matter how poorly Justice League does, they're always going to make another Batman movie. Like Batman's like the breadwinner for DC and Warner Brothers. So no matter what happens, they're definitely going to make that standalone Batman movie. So I could see them trying to graph that idea onto that. But beyond that, I, I doubt we'll hear any more about this. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. And, I, and even then, I think Matt Reeves probably has no interest in continuing the story and we're going to see a completely standalone Batman film uh, outside of you know everything that we're seeing right now. Um, There's one last thing, Peter. Uh, yeah. I forgot to mention that um, Gareth Evans, who's the director of The Raid, is rumored to be getting uh, directing a spinoff about Deathstroke. So maybe uh, this sort of tease could be in the Deathstroke movie. And <laughs> I don't know. That that's one more possibility that that you know I just wanted to raise real quick before we wrapped up. Uh, yeah, and you can read Ben's piece on SlashFilm.com, and it, it also talks about some crazy uh, Joker conspiracy theory thing, uh, a <laughs> bunch of stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, y- you can find all the articles we talked about today on SlashFilm.com linked in the show notes. Uh, Chris, where can we find more of your work online? Uh, I'm at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413. And Ben, where can we find you? I am also writing at SlashFilm. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me on Twitter at Slash Film. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, if you like it, please go over to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. If you have a question or comment uh, or concern, send it to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air in the mailbag or whatnot. Uh, and uh, we will see you tomorrow with uh, a podcast that has more news than just Justice League. Uh, we're going to expand to uh, to the, the whole world of film and TV. Yeah, see you then.